0: Good morning. (laughs) Growing up, one of my good friends belonged to the Christian Reformed Church. Now, in her church culture, the the commandment to remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy was pretty strictly held, especially considering that I grew up, you know, late 80s, early 90s. This was a time when, in most of the country, Sundays were business as usual. My friend's family, though, they took the commandment to rest on Sunday Sunday, very seriously. They didn't go out to dinner on Sundays. Um, They didn't go to the store on Sunday. They didn't do homework on Sunday. Sunday was a day of rest from all work and from going to any place where someone else might be caused to do work. Now, um, her family also went to church two times a day in the morning and right after dinner in the evening. Did anyone else grow up this way? Yeah, a couple of people here. All right, so we went to a Christian reform college. This was also the norm, um, that Sunday was a complete day of rest from all work. People, they didn't go out to lunch, and in the afternoon, they napped, um, and they went to church twice, and the only time you might do homework in college on a Sunday is after you go to night church when the sun goes down, and this was a pattern of behavior that went against cultural norms of the day. Um, This was different than how I grew up in a Lutheran tradition. It's not a bad way to observe a Sunday, but it was different than how most of the state of Illinois operated on Sunday mornings, and it was very easy for other people to look at this odd behavior and make fun of this church culture or question people for keeping such a strict view of Sabbath rest. I remember people reacting in surprise when my friend would talk about the things that she couldn't do on a Sunday, Um, And I would guess that along the way, kids, her friends, might have teased her as well. Have you ever been made fun of for the faith practices that you observe? Have you ever been looked down upon for being a Christian? In today's passage, Peter tells his readers that they shouldn't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now, Is being made fun of for having different Sunday traditions a fiery ordeal? Um, Is someone giving you a look when you say that you go to church? Is that a fiery ordeal? Or is someone, when they stop listening to you and what you have to say because you've mentioned your faith in Jesus, is that a fiery ordeal? I would hesitate to label these things as a fiery ordeal. But what we experience as suffering, because we proclaim faith in Christ, It's such a small glimpse into the true suffering of people around the world who are persecuted because they follow Christ. What we experience pales in comparison to what was happening to the church, the first century church in Peter's day. We live in a culture where it has been culturally acceptable to be a Christian for a very long time. And while it may feel like it's becoming less and less culturally acceptable to be a Christian, Um, We, we aren't, it may feel like it's less and less acceptable to be a Christian. We aren't the persecuted cultural minority that the church was in Peter's day. But we can connect with those feelings of being shamed in our own culture when we do our best to follow Christ. And when we connect with those feelings of shame, we just get a small glimpse into the enormity of the suffering that the church in Peter's day was experiencing. 1 Peter is full of languages and passages about suffering. In five short chapters, suffering is mentioned 12 different times. And in the beginning of the letter, we hear that God's people now for a little while may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. That's how Peter starts the letter. He knows they've been suffering. And throughout the letter, we've heard along the way what some of these different trials have been. So, what are the readers in 1 Peter's context experiencing? Let's take a look through the chapters, and we're going to see what kinds of persecutions have been named, what they've been dealing with. Uh, 1 Peter 2.12. It says, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So, Peter's readers were being accused of doing wrong. All right, 1 Peter 2.18-20. Now, this passage has a lot, and it has a lot of painful things in it. And Pastor Chuck did a great job of unpacking this message, this passage in his message. But Peter, in this passage, he's addressing people who are enslaved. And he's addressing them first and giving them status. But he's also acknowledging that they're suffering under physical abuse. All right, in 1 Peter 3.9, what else do we see about suffering? We say, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult." On the contrary, repay evil with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. So Peter's readers are suffering under evil, and they're being insulted. First Peter 3, 4. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. Peter's readers are being threatened. And First Peter 4, 4. They, the pagans, are surprised that you do not join them in their reckless wild living, and they heap abuse on you. So Peter's readers are experiencing verbal abuse. Now these are the things that we can read about in Peter's five chapters. These are the things that we know were happening to the Christ followers that Peter is writing to in the five provinces of Asia Minor. It's likely that there's more happening as well that Peter doesn't write about. And that those in the cultural minority, those who were following Jesus, were being persecuted in many, many ways. And as Pastor Kurt reminded me this week, as we look at church history, it's not going to get any easier for the Christians as they suffer under the reign of people like Nero and other leaders in the Roman Empire. There was truly a lot of suffering happening in those days. We don't know this kind of suffering in our country today. So it's important to look to the stories of others who have experienced this kind of persecution. We have covenant missionaries today who are church supports, but we don't say their last name and we don't say the country in which they're serving because they're in a place where they could truly be persecuted in some of these similar ways for the work that they are doing. We have international students who come to Purdue and they begin following Christ when they're here. And they meet somebody who has, is doing Christ's work on the campus. And then they return home to places where they are persecuted. Um, their lives and their family relationships are endangered as they go back home. We have a number of people in our community who do ministry with these students. And they could tell you stories. We can also look at this map, which is published by Voice of the Martyrs. And you can see all the places where governments are either hostile to Christianity or where Christianity is completely restricted. If you find this map online, it's an interactive map where you can just click on a country and you can read the stories of what happens to people in these places when they profess to follow Christ. So I've linked to our mission page and to this map in the Bible app, and I would encourage you to spend some time on the mission page of our website. Find this interactive map through the Voice of the Martyrs link, or learn the stories of our missionaries, support our missionaries with a gift, or commit to pray for Christians who are truly persecuted around the world. This is people's experience in other places today. So suffering is a reality for followers of Christ. But what is this text that we read today? What does it have to tell us about suffering? What insights does Peter offer about the suffering that we experience as Christ followers. I'm going to have three points that I'm going to walk you through today about what this suffering um, means. First of all, suffering is to be expected. We tend to believe in this idea of the American dream, that anyone who works hard and makes good choices can be happy and successful. But God has never promised that life would be like that. God has never said that if we choose to follow him, everything will be smooth and fall into place. That's not the reality. In verse 12, as we read, it says, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. The writer of 1 Peter, he's encouraging the reader to make good choices But the reader shouldn't expect to become healthy, wealthy, and popular because of these choices, because they're making a choice to follow God. In fact, the choice to be faithful to God and to follow Jesus, that was what was to blame for the suffering in Peter's day, not a lack of faith in God. Those who called themselves Christians faced suffering and hostility because of what they believed. Peter's readers need to be reminded that they're connected to the wider biblical story where we see plenty of instances of suffering for having faith in God. Even that word that Peter uses to start this section, dear friends, sometimes it's translated as beloved and this word should bring comfort to those who are feeling marginalized and oppressed because of their faith. This word reminds them of how they're connected in love, how they're beloved, how they are a part of the family of God. Now not only should the readers not be surprised by the suffering they're experiencing, but Peter invites them to rejoice in the suffering, and this feels completely counterintuitive to us. Verse 13, Peter says, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And this brings me to my second point about suffering. The suffering that we may experience as Christ followers is to be expected, but it also connects us to Christ. This act of suffering, it's not full of joy in and of itself. But when we realize that our experience connects to Christ's experience, we can find joy in this deeper connection that we have with Christ. So there are a number of parallels between this text in 1 Peter and other Old and New Testament scriptures, and they all demonstrate these connections to Christ, these deeper connections. So I'm going to spend some time building these connections today and showing you where they are. Verse 13. In verse 13 it says, um, rejoice in as much as you participate in the sufferings of Christ. And this echoes language found in Paul's letters to the Philippians. In Philippians 3.10, we read, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So you see here it's the same language, participating in the sufferings of Christ. What does it mean to participate in the sufferings of Christ? Neither Peter nor Paul is saying that we should be crucified and die exactly the same way that Christ did. What they're saying is that Christ had faith in God, and Christ had faith in God's plan for his life, and he was criticized, abused, and put to death when he remained committed to God's truth. Now, likewise, the people that Peter and Paul are both writing to, they're facing criticism and abuse because of their faith in God and God's plan for their life. This commitment to the faith in the face of being criticized and looked down upon and persecuted, this commitment to their faith is what's going to connect them to Christ's experience. It's what's going to help them participate in his sufferings. But let's look at the promise found in the second half of verse 13. We rejoice when we participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. When we think about Christ... There was joy on that first Easter morning when he rose from the dead and all around him knew that he truly was who he said he was. The Son of God. We have the same resurrection joy. As we endure suffering in Christ's name because we know and believe that God is who he says he is, that Christ is who he said he is, that Christ is indeed the Son of God. And that joy that we have in knowing that the God in whose name we suffer is truly the Lord of all creation, that joy is just a glimpse of the joy we'll have when Christ returns and God is made known to all people. We see this theme throughout Scripture 2 Timothy 2, 11 and 12 says, Here is a trustworthy saying, If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. And in Romans 8, 21, it says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. We can experience joy now in the midst of our suffering because it connects us to Christ's suffering And because we see that what Christ said about himself is true. And there's going to be even more joy when he comes again. The joy we experience now is just a foretaste of what is yet to come. Peter also emphasizes our connection to Christ in suffering in the way that he writes verse 14. So I have a little quiz for you here. I want you to listen to this verse and tell me if it sounds familiar to you at all. All right? If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Anyone recognize this style of writing or this pattern? I'm going to let you think about that. But this verse, I'll give you the answer. You may recognize it now and just don't want to shout it out. But this verse is written in the style of the Beatitudes that Jesus teaches in the Sermon on the Mount. Because in a beatitude, we hear blessing proclaimed upon someone who isn't typically looked upon as blessed. Do you see it? If you are insulted, you are blessed. It's a language of a beatitude. And Peter is using this, and in this passage that we read today, there's actually three places where he picks up Jesus' language from the beatitudes. So we're going to look at these verses side by side so you can see this. Uh, Matthew 5.10 through 12 is where we're looking at the Beatitudes. And in Matthew 5.10, Jesus says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, first Peter 4, verse 18, today it says, If it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? We hear echoes of Jesus' words in this language of righteousness but it keeps going Matthew 5:11 Blessed are you when people insult you persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me That echoes 1 Peter 4:14 4, If you are insulted because of the name of Christ you are blessed for the spirit of the glo- spirit of glory and of God rests on you We hear echoes in the language of insulting now, in Matthew 5 12, it says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Peter echoes that language as well in verse, um, verse 13. Rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. We hear echoes in the language of rejoicing, being overjoyed, being glad, having joy. So as Peter connects his passage here, his letter, to Jesus's own words in the Gospel of Matthew, his readers would have known Jesus's words. He's connecting his readers further to the experience and the suffering of Christ by using Jesus's own words. So the last parallel I want to highlight between this text and other scriptures is actually a connection to the Old Testament. Looking at another part of verse 14, We read, so far, if you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Do you hear any Old Testament echoes in here? Language that maybe Jesus also picks up in the New Testament. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Look at Isaiah 11, 1 and 2. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. In the book of Luke, Jesus picks up the same language as he unrolls a scroll of Isaiah in the temple, and he reads this passage out loud. When we are made fun of for following Jesus, when we're looked down upon, when God's people experience true persecution, we can have joy. Because God's spirit rests on us, just as in Isaiah eleven two. We are a people who become God's dwelling place here on earth, just as Jesus was. And it's in this connection to God's spirit and God's son that we can truly find joy all of these connections to god's word in the old testament in the new testament and the words of jesus they serve to show and highlight how our suffering connects us to the life and person of jesus peter builds all of these connections so that the people he's writing to are reminded of the joy that they can have in these deep connections to christ they may have been feeling like they were alone they may have been feeling like no one knew their suffering but peter's using language to connect them deeper into their experience that they share with Christ. Now in this passage, there is a sidebar, a disclaimer of sorts. You may have heard it when Scott read it for us. In verse 15, we read, If you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any kind of criminal or even as a meddler. You see, suffering for believing in God and naming yourself as a Christian and following God's will are one thing. We will experience suffering for those things, but we won't have done anything wrong or sinful simply by professing our faith in God. But if a follower of God suffers because that person is a murderer or a thief or a criminal, then everyone around them looks at them and can find justification for why they are suffering. Peter is telling his readers that they shouldn't suffer for doing something that goes against God's will because this is not the kind of suffering that's going to connect them to Jesus this is not the kind of suffering that's going to shine the light of faith on the people around them this is suffering that people can easily make sense of you did something wrong so of course you're going to suffer for it and this kind of suffering from doing evil deeds well this kind of suffering would be a threat to the very existence of the cultural minority the christian household if they're all suffering because of the evil they do then the Christian household in the minority isn't going to last very long. At the end of this list, we have the word meddler, which doesn't seem to necessarily fit in with the others. But the Greek word stands for, it means mischief maker or busybody, the Greek word that's here. We're not called to police the behavior of other people. We're not suffering for Jesus' sake if we're socially rejected for being a nuisance who's interfering in the lives of other people. Peter goes on in verse 16 to say that if we suffer for being a Christian, there's no shame in being called that name. And finally, as we look at the insights that Peter offers us about suffering that we may experience as Christ followers, we've seen that suffering is to be expected. We've seen now that suffering in so many ways connects us to Christ. But suffering also refines us and prepares us for the coming judgment. May be like me. When I first heard this, I was definitely conflicted in reading about judgment and realizing that I was going to have to talk about judgment. It sounds so harsh. Doesn't Romans say that there is now no condemnation for all who are in Christ? And it does. Romans eight one says that. Look at First Peter four seventeen and eighteen. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household, and if it begins with us. What will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of god and if it is hard for the righteous to be saved what will become of the ungodly and the sinner it is time for judgment to begin with god's household you may be like me you may hear judgment and think about all these negative connotations that we have with it think of condemnation of coming down hard on someone of punishment for all the things that i've done wrong But the word here that Peter uses for judgment, it refers to the actions of a judge who pronounces guilt or innocence. One day we will stand before God and he will be our judge. God as judge isn't going to determine our eternal home based on what we've done right or wrong though. God is going to look at us through the lens of Jesus Christ. And our relationship with Christ, whether we believed in him or not, that will be what determines the outcome of the judgment. Peter is echoing language that's in the Old Testament where those in God's community are judged first and then those outside. And it also says in the Old Testament that God's people will suffer prior to the end of time, prior to the judgment day. So Peter's assuring the readers that this suffering they're experiencing is part of this bigger redemption plan of God. And Peter's looking ahead to that time of judgment. He's essentially saying, we as believers, we're suffering now, but we know that someday... God our judge will see us as innocent through Christ and invite us into his kingdom. Those who don't believe in God when they stand before God as judge, what they face in judgment will be far worse than any suffering that we experience now. Peter's question is if what we're experiencing is hard for us, what will happen to those who reject the gospel, who don't have faith in Christ? Remember how Peter talked about suffering as a fiery ordeal In the first verse, this language of a fiery ordeal connects back to the beginning of 1 Peter. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. We looked at that. These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Do you see that refined by fire all the experiences of the believers to whom Peter is writing, all the suffering they have faced, these things are testing their faith and allowing impurities to be burned away. They're being refined by the fire. They're going through a fiery ordeal. But as the impurities are burned away, they're left with a faith that's stronger than even the purest gold. So we are not suffering to the extent that the believers in First Peter were or to the extent that the first century churches were suffering. We're not suffering to the extent of, of Christians today in countries where following God is illegal. And we're not suffering to the extent of a student who begins following Jesus while attending school here and then returns home only to be cast out from his or her community. These stories are sacred, And we need to hold them with honor and not assume that we have had the same experience. But there will be times when we gain status or we lose status because we follow Christ. So, how do we live? Verse 19 says So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful Creator and continue to do good. We trust in our Creator who is creator and has set the whole universe in plan and in place. We do good in Christ's name. We live honorably within our cultural context so that we won't be accused of sin. And when we recognize that we're entering into an experience where following Christ is going to mean that people will look down upon us or make fun of us or harm us in some way, don't be surprised, look for Christ in those moments because he is there connecting to our experience. He is with us in our deepest suffering. He knows what it's like. And painful though it may be, invite God to do that refining work in you through these fiery ordeals so that your faith will be made stronger. Will you join me in a word of prayer? Lord God, we, just, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the experience and the stories of those who have truly met persecution along the way. Lord, we pray even this morning for the church that is persecuted around the globe. Lord, in places where it is not safe to speak your name or profess faith in you, Lord, would you put your Holy Spirit around those believers, protect them and envelop them and wrap them in your care, Lord, encourage them in their deeper connection to you. And Lord, when we have an experience where someone makes fun of us or looks down on us because we say we believe in Jesus, Lord, would you use those moments to help us tune into the suffering of others? And Lord, in those moments, connect us deeply to you, for you know what it is like to be made fun of, to be looked down upon. God, remind us that you are there with us and strengthen our faith as we walk through. As we walk through these experiences, we pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen.